0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about what's behind Trump and his autocratic instincts, the enablers, the supporters, and the long lineage of authoritarianism. Before we get started on that, though, just quick reminder, we announced in the last episode, we, we are in a no-kidding-at-all, not-having-fun-or-joking-around uh, kind of way of saying that we are in a Break glass in case of emergency, sort of financial situation. We lost our Amazon affiliate program, which was a huge chunk of money for us every month, the equivalent of about 400 paying members. And so, ever since then, we have been in full blown panic mode. For instance, this episode is a day late. The previous episode was a day late. I'm recording this on a Saturday when I should be taking time off. All because we've been working 12, 15 hours a day trying to uh, put together some ideas and and uh, campaigns to get ourselves back on track. So, quick refresher, uh, we have launched a merch store, which coincidentally we were going to do anyway, but we made sure to get that up and going so uh, our merch is merch with a purpose it has uh, the qr code show share built into it meaning that it's exceptionally excellent at helping share the show which is our real priority you know merch like maybe it'll make it a little bit of money and that would be great but if we could uh, expand the size of the audience by sharing it with as many people as possible that's the real key In addition to our new merch store, we have another new way to help the show. Oh, but it's not ready to be announced yet. So close. So close to being ready to be announced. So start getting excited about it now, and then when it gets announced, you'll already be appropriately excited. And then thirdly, of course, new memberships would be the number one best, most supportive way that you could help the show right now when, as the saying goes, when someone's problem is that they, they don't have money, the answer is to give them money. So, new memberships is the easiest way to do that. And of course, gift memberships might be the perfect solution for your uh, holiday needs, which we are conveniently in the middle of right now. So if you're a fan of Patreon, you can sign up there. If you're a fan of Simplicity, go to our standard membership system for the easiest possible process for getting signed up. All the details about all of that are at bestoftheleft.com slash support. That's bestoftheleft.com support. Of course, that's linked on our website and in the show notes on the device you're using in every episode. And now... On to today's episode with clips today from The Ezra Klein Show, The Al Franken Podcast, The Majority Report, an episode of Check Your Blind Spot, The Power Corrupts Podcast, Democracy Now, and Trump Cast.
1: First of all, I agree with you. I don't think Trump himself is personally very interesting. And my book is not about autocrats. It's about the people who... Work for them, who create them, who sell their myth and their legend, and who promote them. Um, and who, those are, and one of the reasons I wrote about them, as you say, is because some of them in some countries are people who I know, um, and so it seemed like I maybe I had, I had some insight. I mean, both in that book and in a couple of articles I've written on a similar theme in the Atlantic, um, I've tried to stay away from sweeping, vast generalizations. You know, they are all like X, or they are all like Y. Um, there's a, a famous historian of Vichy who, who once wrote that um, he would have to write, he, he could not never write a book about collaboration. He would write about collaborationisms because people's path towards this kind of political change is, is so different depending on, on their personality and background and, and, and their interests. Um, the, only, the only sentiment I think that you can say that links them, and here we're you know we're talking about people who were once part of the center right or the in my case the anti-communist movement in Poland or reaganism or thatcherism and who be- who began to change in a in a in a different direction over the past decade or so the one thing that does tend to link them is disappointment um so these are very often people who are disappointed and they are almost always disappointed with their society whether it's the dullness and superficiality of modern democracy whether it's the demographic change that they don't want or like whether it's the decline in morals and values that they see all around them whether you know in the case of Britain it's the it's the you know England's loss of a of its voice in the world and its reduction to a medium-sized country that acts in you know together with other European countries rather than striking out on its own as it once did. Um, so, it's a feeling of loss or disappointment. And sometimes it's quite an extreme form of disappointment. You know, it's a kind of despair. You know, my society has ended. I, I, I wrote a little bit about someone who was a friend of mine, uh, Roger Scruton, who was a British philosopher, who wrote a really extraordinary book about England, his country. Uh, he, he's an English English um, conservative writer. He wrote about England, He, you know, he wrote an, you know, it's an, I'm writing an elegy to my country. I'm writing, I'm writing about a country that has died. I'm going to tell you about the values of the country that used to exist. In other words, he's someone who had already moved beyond the idea of decline or decay and to the idea that it was gone. And I think anybody who has that view of the contemporary world, that it's over, it's finished, my civilization is dead and gone, you know, my society is decayed, that view leads you in almost inevitably into a kind of radicalism. And you can have that view on the left too, by the way, this is not necessarily a, at all unique to the right. It's just that I wrote about the right because that's, that's the piece of it that I know. But if you have that feeling that it's over, then, you know, then why wouldn't you try to smash everything? If everything's a disaster, if civilization is dead, if, if morality is declined, you know, if traditional values can't be recovered then you might as well have whatever you want to call it, the Flight 93 election or the let's change the system or let's let's replace the elite with a new elite. Those are all the same kinds of sentiments. So, But, you I mean, it plays itself out in different ways. Um, you know, you can find people who are also personally disappointed. So whatever it is about the current political circumstances isn't good for their careers, and sometimes that's a factor. You know, they see that by aligning themselves to a movement – they can i don't know become more popular or make more money or have more power and sometimes that's that's it and and sometimes it is quite philosophical you know the this you know the, my civilization is dead and it i'm i'm now going to be part of smashing it and that's usually the link that you find particularly on, you know on the most radical part of the right as well as the most radical part of the left
2: We had four prosecutors walk off the Roger Stone case. One walked right out of the Justice Department after uh, Attorney General Bill Barr essentially withdrew their proposed sentencing recommendation for Stone. And that happened after Trump had tweeted demanding As much. And then we had kind of a lot of drama where Barr goes on ABC and says, I wasn't going to be bullied into doing what the president wanted. So I did what the president wanted. (laughs) But I wish he'd stopped tweeting, at which point the president continued tweeting. Then we had a really interesting weekend where we had uh, 2000 former DOJ uh, employees signing a public document saying that Barr should resign. Uh, we had uh, Donald Ayer, who was the deputy attorney general under George H.W. Bush, put a piece in The Atlantic saying that Bill Barr's America is freaking terrifying. And uh, we had the Federal Judges Association, which is an independent organization of judges, holding an emergency meeting to try to talk about what was happening at the Justice Department. All of this happened while Trump continues to tweet threats at the Mueller team, continues to tweet. What look like threats, or certainly it seems to be intimidation toward one of the jurors in the Stone jury uh, and the judge. Uh, all that is going on, and as you said, most of life is just going on as normal. As the Justice Department becomes kind of suddenly a machine that goes after Trump's enemies and exculpates Trump's friends, it's 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 a worry.
3: Ian is rule of law. Important in democracy?
4: <laughs> it is the cornerstone of democracy because oh, uh-huh. I think the sculptor who was hired uh, to put the finishing touches on the Department of Justice building in Washington actually etched into one of the stones in the building, Equal Justice Under Law. Um, so literally, it's it's in the stone of the Justice Department, Equal Justice Under Law. Okay. Um, and that's what's at stake and i agree with you it should be one of the top topics being discussed by people who want to assume the presidency um because i'd go back further than a week and i and and i, I hear Dalian why this week has been so alarming but i actually i want to rewind back maybe 14 15 years right and here's why i want to go back 14 15 years because put this all in context Freedom House, which is an organization that studies democracies around the world, including whether they have rule of law based societies, and it's been doing that since pretty much the end of World War II, had basically been tracking in its data that democracies had been improving and spreading to more countries through most of the latter half of the 20th century until about 15 years ago. And about 15 years ago, you start to see that data go into a retreat. And there are countless scholars who have studied this and pointed out that what is happening in places like Hungary, where Viktor Orban has dismantled Hungarian democracy, or Venezuela, where Nicolas Maduro has dismantled Venezuelan democracy, is part of a trend in the 21st century of democracies fading and autocrats rising. And one of the things that all of these autocrats do is they try to turn law enforcement into a weapon to go after their opponents, lock her up, lock her up, and protect their friends. Go easy on stone, go easy on stone. Those societies are not democracies, they're autocracies. Um, And I think it's, it's notable that 2,500 now former Department of Justice officials who signed that letter point out in it that societies that use law enforcement to go after the government's enemies and protect its friends aren't representative democracies and and constitutional republics anymore
3: what's heartening about this is that uh, after trump was acquitted even before he was acquitted uh, susan collins uh, said that uh, he was going to learn from this that he learned a lesson from this then he said uh, his phone call was perfect uh the next day he said that and then she voted to quit anyway This is just giving him license, he feels, right? He is headed full-throatedly toward what we always feared this guy was.
4: Yeah, Adam Serwer has an excellent piece in The Atlantic this week. Um, where he basically says we are witnessing the ending days of the Trump administration and the first days of the Trump regime. Um, he sort of invokes a turning point in, you know, the end of the Roman Republic. And there are some who would call that hyperbolic and, uh, sky is falling. Uh, and I think it's worth us saying, I hope that it is hyperbolic right we hope that he's wrong but let's not be caught flat-footed if he's right because the lesson that most of the autocrats learn is if they push on a check on their power and the check falls they push further right and that's the lesson that uh donald trump learned from being acquitted for abusing his power is that the current republican party is simply not going to hold him accountable or provide so that, any sort. that's of what
3: he learned power. from it from this that's what he learned right that's right you keep saying well okay we're the united states of america this can't happen here but we know who this guy is and we're seeing a republican party that is completely unable to counter him just scared to death of him and once the fear is there then he's two-thirds of the way there
2: I think that one of the things that I've been mulling this past week, and I completely agree with Ian, that I think part of the problem here is that the rule of law is so baked into any sort of foundational theory of constitutional democracy that everyone believes that it is – made of steel, that it is uh, inviolable and cannot be violated. And all these systems exist uh, to make sure that the rule of law is protected and what I think we've certainly learned in the last few weeks and months is that actually, no, it's a bunch of soft norms. Uh, some of them are hard norms, but they're just norms. And if, in fact, uh, Alexander Vindman is to be marched out of the White House uh, for having done nothing more than testify truthfully, something has changed and we don't know what it is and we can't name it and we can't identify it. It seems that To me, what's really been fascinating is for Bill Barr to simply insert himself into the stone sentencing recommendation and then to act as though this happens all the time and that the attorney general does special favors for the president's confederates and colleagues. Uh, And we all just think, well, maybe that is what happens. Maybe this has always been the case that the attorney general is just the president's personal fixer. Uh, I think it's happening both in a really compressed amount of time and happening in ways that make it not discernible to the naked eye what's going on. If you had told me you could have gotten 2,000 former Justice Department employees to sign the kind of statement that was signed last weekend, I would have been shocked. But the fact is, I don't know that anybody noticed or cared.
0: If you imagine that our democracy is a dashboard, then all the lights are flashing, all the alarms are blaring, and it's all warning us that it's time to check our systems. And that's why the nation's new podcast is called System Check. On System Check, host Melissa Harris-Perry and Dorian Warren sit down to diagnose and repair our malfunctioning political system. System Check is a weekly show that asks what it would be like to break free from the oppressive systems that are holding us down, and it's unapologetically rooted in progressive black culture and politics, from the movement for black lives to the fight for climate justice, from the unjust immigration regime to the unfinished voting rights struggle. Dorian and Melissa want to know how you are living in, working around, smashing through, or recreating the systems that shape your life. And as their season continues to roll out, they've been looking unflinchingly at poverty in America, first at its legacy and then taking aim at how to abolish it. As even people who didn't imagine that they may be susceptible to poverty find themselves sliding into COVID-induced hardship, and those who were already struggling are being tested as never before, this topic couldn't be any more timely. So I know you're going to enjoy System Check too. So don't wait. Subscribe to System Check on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Friday.
5: You know, the, the, the issue with calling him a weak strongman or a semi-failure is that what is the standard we're using? Because I hear this all the time. You know, people write to me and say, you're, you know, you're crazy. He's not Putin. He's not Orban. But Putin and Orban started somewhere. Like Putin's been there for 20 years. Orban's been there for a long time. Erdogan had himself appointed both president and prime minister, and he had the coup. That was his. There are these shock events, and that's one of them. And um, so Trump is just getting started. And a- another way to see this is that um, if we if we view him through the lens of Democratic presidents, then he, he, he does, he looks strange. But his aims have never been those of Democratic presidents. He's not interested in public welfare, public goods. He's not interested in, again, the welfare of his people. He couldn't care less. That's why he gave up on COVID. His aims have always been to make money for the Trump Uh, organization and to build this personality cult. That's why he keeps having rallies, which again, makes no sense uh, by most logics to have rallies and further spread the pandemic, but his ego needs and his needs to keep his following uh, far outweigh those. Um, And, and he also does want to stay in power as long as possible. And now he has the perfect co-conspirators. I talk about this in my book of William Barr and Secretary of State Pompeo, who dutifully went in front of the cameras, the latter, and said, oh, yes, we'll have a transition to a second Trump administration. And the other thing to say about Trump is, whereas, and this is where his historical perspective puts him, it's interesting to look at him through this uh, lens, that many, many uh, leaders who had success um, in domesticating parties They had founded those parties like Berlusconi with Forza Italia or Mussolini, or they'd been in a position of leadership in their parties like Orban for a really long time. Trump just came in from outside. And in four short years, he's wrapped that party around his finger so that they acquitted him at the Senate trial. Their 2020 party platform was like, dear leader, we're just supporting Trump. Hmm. And they're sticking with him even now. Um, Only a few senators are going against this pretty naked power grab. Um, So it's I see him as extremely successful at the things that he cared about most, which is loyalty um, and making money for Trump organization.
6: Well, I mean, but he also it it, I mean, knock on wood, it appears he's he failed at maintaining power.
5: Yes he did fail, um, and I don't think ultimately he's going to succeed in staying in power. I'm not using the some people are using the word that there's a coup going on. There, there's an attempt to use every uh, means possible to try uh, and legal means. And Donald Trump's motive, uh, mode of operation has always been to find loopholes in tax and regulatory and financial right. and in legal structures. That's how he operates. And again, he's got bar there. Um, and of course he stacked the Supreme court so that if it came to that, which there's precedence for, you know, using the courts, letting courts decide things. So, um, he was voted out, but, but the key thing is to look at how he's reacting. Now he's, he's, he's not conforming to a democratic playbook. He's, he's refusing to even accept the results.
6: Right. All right. So, uh, where does that leave us in terms of like, the the history of of post strong men i mean it's almost as if and 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 because he i mean let's just assume that things continue on this trajectory right where you have you have langford saying you know we got to get joe biden right into this but but not because he's going to be the president but just in case he becomes the president which is you know um Uh, maybe in some respects, more reprehensible uh, that he's, you know, sort of like playing along with with, hedging. Right. But, but uh, let's assume uh, because it's a totally different interview. If Donald Trump actually doesn't leave uh, the office and we don't know what that, but let's assume that he does sometime in December, he begrudgingly says, yeah, maybe whatever. In fact, I don't want to do this anymore uh, Michael Cohen says he's going to go to Mar-a-Lago for Christmas and he's just not going to come back for the next like three weeks, which actually sounds like exactly, you know, what I would imagine him doing. Um, but what happens when that's the way a strong man goes out, or I guess maybe more generically, what happens at, to a society after a strong man? Like, is there, yeah. there's, there are I don't know, 30 million um, uh, evangelicals, maybe more, who voted for him, 70 million people who voted for him, who, you know, not all of them, but a significant percentage of those people see this guy as dear leader, um, as opposed to just a guy who gave us good tax cuts and is a businessman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What happens to those people after the fact? And how does the fact that Trump sort of like skulks away, does that, drain the energy out of that authoritarian impulse by and and i'm talking authoritarian in terms of the followers yes uh Mm -hmm. or does it keep a significant potential there that tom cotton could come up and and pick up and walk with or
5: donald trump in 2024 because he's he he plays with because they they can't they always have to be campaigning they have to have a cause um I, i mean michael cohen's been right about uh You know everything he said, because he knows his subject, but we we always have to remember that for uh, regular democratic presidents, the prospect of leaving office is a time to think about their legacy for someone like Donald Trump and he again his psych unfortunately his psychology checks every box of all the leaders that I've studied the outcome's different you know it's not a fascist outcome but It's like a psychological annihilation for them to leave office. They can't imagine life without being adulated and having power to humiliate others. So that's why it's very difficult and many of them meet a bad end. Now, when you think of somebody, the only one who was voted out of office uh, was Pinochet in Chile. And he had a year, over a year uh, before he actually left office after the vote. And he tried to sabotage the new democracy as much as possible because um, they're very vindictive. And so he stacked the Supreme Court. He, he have you seen a lot of in Trump world? You've seen a lot of movements of personnel, top positions being reshuffled. This is uh, authoritarianism is about the lack of accountability, and Donald Trump's always been about secrecy and lack of accountability. So he's trying to protect his secrets. He's getting last. I call it the end stage follies. Um, I made a little video for Twitter about end stage follies. And so they're trying to do damage control here. But what he will leave is what happened also in Chile and, and uh, Spain after Franco. And I'm not saying these are analogous because things work differently today. But Um, he'll leave a deeply divided nation. And it's going to take us a very long time to heal from that polarization. But I predict that whatever role he has, he has to keep this polarization going because the cult of victimhood, uh, Trump's victimhood is the foundational myth of of the Trump world, that he's a victim. And he must keep this going to save face no matter what he actually does.
6: Uh, In fact, I think there was a reporting today, he's already talking about uh, creating some type of digital media empire. uh.
5: Yes. Truly, it's hard for uh, people who don't have the psychology, and it was not fun to immerse myself for two years in these guys' heads, Um, but you cannot underestimate the the strength of their personality cult. And when you look at Berlusconi, Berlusconi was finally forced out of office because of the Eurozone crisis. And this massive sex scandal with underage, you know, uh, women and all these things. And he was not allowed to run for office as part of his punishment, although he never went to jail. But the next time elections came around in 2013, his party almost won again. And this was his party. It had the same relation as Trump, has the GOP wrapped around his finger. So they're even though they leave office their atta- the attachments that they've formed the leader follower relationship it's really hard to dissolve it
3: it's time once again to play america's favorite political game show
7: check yeah. yeah
0: your blind spot That's right it's check your blind spot. Brought to you and powered by our sponsor, the Ground News app, the first-ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. The Ground News app features The Blind Spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other, so I use The Blind Spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I am going to tell you about news stories, and you're going to tell me which side of the political spectrum is blind to them. Are you ready?
8: Come at me, kid.
0: Excellent. I think we're going to have fun today. Usually, (laughs) this game's all uh, hard work and drudgery. Not today, though.
8: Okay.
0: Okay. So, we're diving in to round one. In whose political blind spot is this story... The RNC, the Republican National Committee, spent more than $300,000 on Donald Trump Jr.'s new book.
8: (laughs) I did hear about this, Um, which would lead me to believe it's in the right's blind spot.
0: And for the sake of fairness, I just want to clarify, this is not the same story as the RNC spending almost $100,000 on Don Trump Jr.'s book. Last year. Oh, this is completely different.
8: This is a new. Did he write a new book? Well, we all know he didn't write it.
0: <laughs> so, would you like to change your answer?
8: Yeah, and there's no, there's nothing else you can tell me about
0: this really without. No, it's the exact same story twice <laughs> because they buy his book every year.
8: <laughs> I'm gonna stick with my answer.
6: <laughs> all right.
0: That is right. I, I expect that the right never talks about right. the RNC <laughs> buying the books of their people. And this year, it's it's especially pointed because we know that the RNC and the Trump campaign raised, you know, $150 or $170 million just off the post-election oh, it's up to fraud claim. It's claims.
8: under $200 million now. Oh, excuse me. Oh,
9: oh. jeez. Oh, Did you see that?
0: And so this is just like, this is a tiny, tiny kickback by comparison. Mm-hmm. Like, they're only spending 300000 Right. Yeah. Well done. Let's move on to round two. And this one's a two-parter. See, it's, it's more fun <laughs> that way. So in two different stories, they're both talking about the Los Angeles Police Department.
8: Okay.
0: Two different stories. One on the right, one on the left. You're going to see if you can tell which is which. Mm. Part A, the L.A. Sheriff says deputies can conceal their names during protests. And part B, the L.A. Sheriff says he won't enforce California's stay-at-home order.
8: Okay, yeah. (laughs) So part A is in the right blind spot, and part B is in the left blind spot.
0: Correct. (sighs) Need we say more? I, pretty, I don't even know if we, yeah. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty upfront. Yep. And for our final round. In whose political blind spot is this story? More fun, though. For this round, we're going with name that tune rules. So instead of just a few notes, see if you can get the blind spot correct with just three words of the headline.
8: Ooh.
0: Joe Biden says...
8: I mean, it's going to be in the right spline spot. (laughs) Oh, sorry. In the left spline spot. In the left spline spot. I misspoke. I misspoke.
0: So this story, because if I gave you the whole headline, it'd be too much of a giveaway.
8: Yeah, the left never talks about what Joe Biden says.
0: (laughs) Joe Biden says... So the original story, apparently, was that Joe Biden broke his foot.
8: Right. I did hear that.
0: And he explained that he broke his foot while playing with his dog. Right. Did you hear any more details? Mm,
8: That his doctor was pretty open about that and didn't make it a whole (laughs) conspiracy theory event.
0: (laughs) So here's the full story, as relayed by Joe Biden to Jake Tapper on CNN. Okay. Joe Biden says that he broke his foot after getting out of the shower. His dog wanted to play fetch. He playfully pulled the dog's tail while he chased it down what he referred to as an alleyway in his house on his way to the bedroom, (laughs) where he claims the dog slid on a throw rug, which he then tripped on and broke his foot. Oh my
8: goodness! That's a continuous story.
0: He yeah that was starts
8: with the shower ends with the rug. Yeah. Okay, Joe. (laughs) It's just like, it's just your funky uncle telling a long story about how they stubbed their toe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he he told it pretty quickly. And and he said, you know, he was asked, he's like, hey, so, you know, how's your foot? What's with the boot? And he told that story. He's like, look, it's not a very interesting story. But
8: it Sounds fascinating. But here's There's the so th- many twists and turns. <laughs> here's
0: the thing, especially when Joe tells it, and he mistakenly refers to his hallway as an alleyway, it becomes
8: oh, so that they of course it they becomes a lying. It's a whole
0: well, it becomes a genuinely hilarious story. <laughs> Left, right, or center, you should agree that this is hilarious and that Joe Biden sounds like a cartoon character. So, my my favorite snarky lead-in from a mm. right-wing article is. In a Thursday CNN interview, the 78 year old statesman revealed the peculiar details of the incident, <laughs> which I enjoyed. The
8: peculiar. The,
0: no, the statesman. Oh. Referring well, to him as a statesman. I mean, flattering. Like, <laughs> but it's a cartoonist story. But my favorite. Oh,
8: because they can't call him president elect, Jay. They well, call I, him something. I,
0: I guess there's that too. <laughs> but my favorite right wing take overall. Was was the article was just like who even believes this story? <laughs> and then they like explain it. And they're like, yeah, right.
8: What do they think? <laughs> I, I just like want to know what they think. Right. Like he tripped because he's a senile old man. Like that's I guess what they're hoping for. Like actually he's a completely doddering old fool, and and he can't be trusted to run the country because he fell down.
0: <laughs> or I mean that, or they're saying that. He's playing down the dog abuse by saying he only pulled its tail, because a lot of places were highlighting that, too. Um, They're like, oh, he he didn't say anything about pulling the dog's tail at first. He was clearly hiding it. (laughs) So, I don't know. Maybe their theory is like, no, he broke his foot kicking the dog or something. I don't know. Is this
8: what we have to look forward to for the next four years? Yes. This is the kind of stuff.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, excellent job. Uh, that's that's three out of three. <laughs> I hope you had fun. Yeah, no, I
8: like the new angles. We'll, uh, spice it
0: spice up. Spice it bit. up. Yeah. Yeah. So winner and still champion, Amanda from Boston. Thank you for playing. That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone. Definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated Ground News app. If you would like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features and let them know we sent you. Go to ground.news best. But I hasten to mention that it's actually a free app and you should use it whether you want their premium features or not. Just want to clarify. <laughs> As always whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to... Check your blind spot!
7: So now we're going to get to the multi-billion dollar question. Why do dictators behave like this?
10: What's the point? Are they crazy or are they strategic? So maybe the dictator just really wants a cult of individuals who believe that he can fly or that he can, that he never has to use the bathroom or some other you know, crazy thing like that.
7: That's David Siegel, who is an associate professor of political science at Duke University. And he studied cults of personality from a theoretical perspective, trying to
10: figure out why they exist. So that was the early arguments tended to be focused more on just satisfying the dictator's ego, basically. and sure.
7: Of course, ego has something to do with it, but it only goes so far as an explanation. It doesn't make that much sense to believe that all of these various dictators in different regions, in different time periods, all came up with the same solution to satisfy their ego.
10: There has to be something more. Some of the more recent arguments were more instrumental, so more focused on what the dictator actually gains from that cult.
7: So let's put ourselves in the very fancy shoes of a dictator now. The most important thing that you care about is making sure that you stay in power. Because if you get toppled from power, you're likely to be jailed, forced into exile, or killed in cold blood by the very people that you had tortured or oppressed before. And the entire uh, raison
11: d'etre of the regime is to perpetuate itself and to perpetuate the status quo, which involves the cult of personality.
7: So clinging to power is goal number one. And in order to do that, you've got to think about two levels of society, the educated and wealthy elites, and the masses, a.k.a. everybody else.
10: These are authoritarian regimes, and in general, the the mass public has a role in maintaining regime maintenance only insofar as the entire population doesn't rebel.
7: In other words, the dictator of North Korea or Turkmenistan or Libya or Equatorial Guinea or Eritrea really only has to care about ordinary people enough to ensure that there's no revolution, and no uprising.
10: The dictator lives in sort of constant worry that the population could
7: rebel. Other than that, though, as long as they're not taking to the streets, those ordinary people don't matter as much to you. But elites are a different story. Maintaining their loyalty is something that requires constant attention. After all, if a powerful army commander turns against you, you could be ousted in a coup. If a wealthy family turns against you, you might lose some key support or some key funding. And if a family member turns against you, you might face being murdered or supplanted by someone
9: else who wants to wear the proverbial crown. You can't rule by force alone because you need to get 1% of the elite to work with you voluntarily because you can't be at a bayonet point for the oil minister and you can't bribe the media guy. So
7: when it comes to elites, some studies suggest that the cult of personality is a clever way to solve an important dilemma.
10: A lot of those focused on what's known as the loyalty-competence
7: trade-off. Which is exactly what it sounds like. A trade-off between people who are more loyal and people who are more competent.
10: So the, the dictator might want multiple things. One of these things is competence. And This is just simple skills. And those skills enable the follower of the dictator to be more useful to the dictator, but it comes at a cost.
7: The idea here is that people who are highly competent are less likely to be blindly loyal. They're critical thinkers, and they're rarely people who are keen to be henchmen who just follow orders. But for a dictator, you really need some people who are willing to walk off a cliff for you. People who will just do as you say, no questions asked, no matter how ruthless, no matter how cruel, no matter how outlandish. And one way that you can test whether someone is blindly loyal to you or not is to figure out whether they have a willingness to lie. If someone is willing to lie for you, it's a decent predictor of whether they'll be loyal or not. And the more outlandish the lie that they're willing to tell, the more likely that they'll be loyal. But even still, it's way easier to figure out if someone is skilled than if someone is loyal.
10: And we say there are probably ways in which the dictator can figure out skill from other signals, right? So the dictator does not choose these people from birth for the most part, right? These people have had previous occupations, previous tasks, and you can identify in a lot of cases how skilled the person is.
7: So a cult of personality isn't really used to try to figure out who is skilled and who is not. But that doesn't mean that it's a useless tool. It's a tool to
10: ingratiate and express loyalty. So basically the argument in a nutshell is to show how a dictator can set up a cult of personality and ask all of his um, subordinates to engage in over-the-top behavior in support of the dictator. And by observing this behavior and seeing how far the subordinates are willing to go along that line, no matter how ridiculous it makes them seem.
11: So this provides an outlet for sycophancy. And it's an accessible way to express fealty and obedience to the ruling regime in order to curry favor.
7: If someone is willing to publicly proclaim something ridiculous, like, yes, I do in fact believe that Kim Il-sung wrote a book just about every day of his life, or they're willing to promote the Green Book like it's a religion, then that person is signaling that they're likely to be a loyal henchman. If you really want to impress the dictator, by the way, make sure you promote the regime propaganda even when you're far away from the country and seemingly beyond the surveillance of the state security services. So, for example, one of Muammar Gaddafi's henchmen, a guy named Musakusa, well, he showed his loyalty by promoting the Green Book ideology even when he was a student in the United States.
9: When he went to Michigan State, he wrote his master's thesis about... Qaddafian ideology and how the Green Book emerges naturally from the society. And yes, that was a vetting mechanism. Vet a, a certain guy who could rise up in the, the ranks of the regime wrote his master's thesis when he's away from the eyes of the state about how great Qaddafi is.
7: And when you impress the dictator with displays of loyalty, there are usually rewards. Loyalty is offered
11: in exchange for protection and privileges.
7: But there's still a problem. Once everybody in society is told to say that Kim Il-sung wrote 18,000 books, or that Kim Jong-un won a yacht race when he was 9 years old, then it's not really like you're going out on a limb any longer. Once it's become the accepted wisdom, it's just commonplace. Like, yeah, everybody knows he won the yacht race. So you're no longer having to risk anything to say something that is objectively crazy. And that means that these public performances become less and less useful over time. So you need to find new ways of testing people. You'd want to see public, costly displays of obedience. And that's precisely why these cults of personality get increasingly wild and weird over time, with a sort of ratcheting effect.
10: As behavior becomes normalized, you have to ask for more extreme
7: behavior. You have to come up with more and more outlandish claims to test people. If they stick to the script, no matter how outlandish it is, then that might be an indication that you can trust them. But of course there's always the risk that they're parodying regime propaganda, not out of loyalty, but out of fear.
3: Yeah, I mean, the question of belief is a tough one, right? Because of the hidden preferences problem. Namely, you've got somebody pointing a gun at your head, so obviously you're going to say that Kim Il-sung wrote 18,000 books. My sense is the elites, they know it's bunk. I mean, they know.
7: And this is a key point. It might not really matter whether the elites are true believers or not. If they're willing to at least pretend, they're probably willing to be loyal at other times, too. And even if they privately think that Kim Jong-un is a ruthless tyrant, they're being conditioned to toe the party line simply out of fear. So it works on two levels. On the first level, you can assess loyalty. And to convey a clear message on the second level, that behaving like a robot who has been programmed to spread regime propaganda is the only way to get ahead in a totalitarian society.
11: It's the way Things run. It's the way that you move up. It reflects a means of social mobility. It reflects a means of protection. You must declare your loyalty in order to attain any sort of social mobility, uh, privileges, and to operate within a system that will uh, somehow work for you and your family.
7: So you get the idea. With a cult of personality, dictators get a sort of three-for-one deal. You brainwash your people by feeding them absurd lies that they must repeat if they want to avoid jail, or worse. You figure out who will be the most loyal cronies that you can make into your top advisors. And you scare elites into obeying you, or else. So, if you're a dictator, all of those three things are really useful. But there's no free lunch even in a dictatorship. The cult of personality
9: brings with it a hidden cost. When you demand that advisors tell you how great you are, your decision-making instantly becomes compromised.
7: And that's how something that
9: started off as a strategy becomes a liability. That kind of cult of personality shows that dictators are not purely strategic, because when they get buttered up so much because their egos need this constant reinforcement, they then let their own decision-making processes be influenced by the cult of personality that they themselves have built up.
7: Telling lies can be dangerous when you start to believe in them
9: yourself. And this is a fascinating thing I always try to tell people about Qaddafi. Yes, Qaddafi was cunning, but he actually believed in his own stuff. And this is where we cross the line from political science into psychology. As he got older, he became more vain. And this is a fascinating study in psychology. He was a handsome, charismatic man, loved by the people, for a small period of years. Then, as he got older, and maybe he was suffering from various diseases, he wasn't charismatic anymore, he certainly wasn't handsome. He did many facial surgeries, he tried to have an even more bizarre cult of personality, probably because he missed the adulation.
7: And then we get to this final point. Bizarre can actually be beneficial. The weirder it is, the more likely that people are to take notice. You've probably heard of Muammar Gaddafi, and that's no
9: accident. What he successfully did in a Trumpian fashion was understanding media gimmicks to raise his profile. I mean, genius, way ahead of his time um, in terms of manipulating a media narrative. He invited a thousand models to a conference in Milan where he told them to convert to Islam. You know, how could the media not cover that? A thousand Italian models, you know, all being convinced about how Islam would keep them thin and drinking wasn't the way for them to get the right agents in their careers or the right husbands.
7: And even though much of the media coverage portrayed Gaddafi as a bit of a
9: kook, he was a larger-than-life kook that put Libya on the map. He punched above his weight, for lack of a better term. Reagan says in the 80s that Gaddafi is the second greatest opponent of American influence in Africa, i.e., ahead of the Chinese but below the Soviets. That's amazing, right? Right.
2: Uh, even though as you say it's uh it's very surprising that white women voters uh, voted for him in greater for Trump in greater numbers in this election than uh, they did in 2016 uh, given trump's uh, consistent assaults uh, on uh, women of of all kinds I guess the thing that that's striking is also the fact I mean Trump did win over 60 million votes uh 68 million votes that Given what he's done and said to uh, and about African-Americans, Asian-Americans, uh, uh, the Latinx uh, uh, communities, that any increase, first of all, that any people would vote for him. And on top of that, that there would be an increase at all, even if marginal.
12: Yes, well, I I, uh, I agree with you, and I think the issue to understand, again, that's why I raise uh, the 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 nature of uh, U.S. imperialism, I do not think that we should underestimate the reality because everyone knew who uh, why they were voting in this election. There was no there were very few undecided voters. And I think one of the things that still has to be answered is how, once again, the polls were so wrong, not about necessarily about the vote for for Joe Biden, because most of the most of the polls gave Joe Biden about 51, uh, 51, sometimes 52 percent of the vote of 50, which is more or less what he's been getting. Uh, but there, there was a severe underestimation in all the polls once again of how many people Americans were voting for Trump. Uh, And I think that we've got to understand increasingly these polls are are highly suspect uh, and uh, cannot be trusted. Uh, But I think the key thing to understand is that, uh, unfortunately, and I've been saying this now for years when I get a chance to do analysis rather than just ask questions, is that there is a significant portion of the American elect of the American people including among African-Americans and Latinos and, uh, and other groups who are perfectly happy with the United States being the world's imperial power and who to some degree or other believe that they are invested in the continued national chauvinism and expansionism and bullying of America around the world. So this vote also represents, even if Joe Biden wins, that there, there are many Americans who are perfectly happy with our country being a rogue state in the world, uh, and uh, and lording over the rest of the world, and and insisting that it's it its interests are first. There is a national chauvinist movement in America, uh, and a, a movement that believes authoritarianism is the way to go. We cannot underestimate this, and uh, and uh, hopefully. Uh, the progressives will attempt uh, to uh, organize understanding that. And the work that has to be done, though, is in the white community, is in among white Americans. That's where the organizing needs to be done, uh, because that is the population that is increasingly shifting more and more to a national chauvinist and a white supremacist uh, a view of the world. Uh, And I don't think that we can sweep that under the rug and act like it's not happening because it is happening. And that's, I think, the key lesson that, yes, Donald Trump got more votes (laughs) this time than he got last time. And there's a reason for that.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Ezra Klein Show featuring Ann Applebaum on Trump's enablers and what drives people to radicalism. The Al Franken podcast spoke with Dahlia Lithwick and Ian Basson about the breakdown of the rule of law. The Majority Report discussed the authoritarian lineage Trump's been following. Then we heard an episode of Check Your Blind Spot, followed by the Power Corrupts podcast explaining why dictators and wannabes lie so wildly and make their supporters repeat the lies. Did you hear that Trump had the biggest inauguration in history? And then Democracy Now! spoke with Juan Gonzalez about the clear-eyed vote of millions of Americans who want the U.S. to be a rogue, bullying state in the world. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard two bonus clips from the Trump cast: one on the problem of Trump-busting norms, and another on the authoritarianism of groups like the Proud Boys. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of today's transcript, so you can find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed— and tremendously support the show. Sign up at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
12: Hi, my name is Josh. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, been a member for many years so i just heard about the losing your 400 member equivalent so i was wondering if every current member took an equal share of covering that loss how much would each person have to give or increase their current membership by tell me that i will increase mine and hope that everybody increases theirs by the same amount and then you're covered I know that's unlikely, that everybody will do it, but start with me and see how it goes. Thanks.
13: Hi, Jay. My name is Linda, and I live in Illinois. First of all, I wanted to say that I've been listening to Betso The Last for at least a decade, and I've learned a great deal from it. I've always liked listening to the voicemail part of the show, too, because I find listener input to be very valuable, and I really like your thoughtful analysis of it. I thought about calling you in the past, but my social anxiety got the better of me, but this time, I thought I would give it a try. I feel compelled to say something about the clip you played from History Extra with Rutkin Bregman. I found this talk to be interesting, but on further analysis, it seemed to avoid important information that would help with understanding. I noticed that his talk did not include any mention of class consciousness. He talks about societies and cultures and the poor as if they just happened and are logical consequences of social order. The main thing that got me going is when he said, for all of history, and I'm guessing he is saying up until European capitalists colonized, industrialized, and globalized the world, people were, I quote, sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly. This seems crazy to me. I feel like he's definitely looking at the world with a white supremacist lens. I believe that the reason that vast swaths of population were looked at this way is because they were intensely oppressed by the small minority of extremely wealthy aristocracy and lords that ruled over them. These rich hoarded all the wealth for themselves and the struggle for liberation was always on the mind of the poor and oppressed. Bregman mentioned that the thinking of Marx-Lenin is out of the question, it is, in the past and cannot lead to any type of um, utopia, he says. I definitely think he's gotten this wrong. The reason that there are poor people is because of the lack of political will of rich people and the class of people that hang on to the rich and live off of them. The rich need the poor to oppress so they can be richer and rob those people in the earth of resources so they can continue to become richer. It is capitalism in general and it's most brutal unbridled form as we hear, have here in the US that creates poverty. The Netherlands, where Bregman is from, is another settler colonial rich country, which has more social programs because they have socialists in their government who believe in a more egalitarian form of state rule because it's much more moral. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that those four people that he described as sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly were and are actually amazing and wise human beings that have always been struggling against oppression and fighting for a fair and equal world. And the right to a dignified place in that world. And that's all I have to say, Jay. Thank you for listening. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. Thanks, as always, to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments and, frankly, a whole bunch of other stuff. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. First of all, quick response to Josh, thank you for the obviously kind message. The answer to your question, how much additional is needed, I I, I ran the numbers, it's about $3 per patron would get our heads above water. Now, ideally, I mean, before we took this big hit, I had dreams of getting to the point where we were well above water or where... I could have a full-time research person instead of just part-time research people. I mean, I, I can only imagine the, the beautiful things that I could do with a full-time researcher and an associate producer. So anyway, with that dream set aside for the moment, for obvious reasons, take about $3 per existing patron to get our heads above water, but that includes supporters who currently are only chipping in a buck a month on patreon and it also includes people who are donating a lot already you know like a while ago dave from olympia wanted to increase his contribution so much that i had to make a new level for him and named it after him so now our our membership levels are as they go up in value patron member professional protester social justice warrior radical leftist and then dave from olympia so i mean if you really wanted to support the show you too could be a dave from olympia and and uh, chip in a hefty amount each month so you know yes of course existing members increasing their contributions will help and i appreciate anyone who wants to do that some have already begun But it's just not fair or reasonable to think that we're actually going to get there with just existing members who are either not giving very much because they presumably can't, or those who are already giving a lot. So if you're not already a member but could be, really, this is the time. uh, Please think about signing up. And of course, as I've mentioned, gift memberships and merch are all the rage this holiday season, and we have another way to help the show coming up, but I can't announce it yet. I, we're so close to being able to announce it, so uh, keep an eye and an ear out for that. Secondly, in response to Linda on Rutger Bregman, this is in reference to a clip that was on the reposted episode, the, the most recent reposted episode, so if you missed that, this is what she's talking about. She mentions Rutger Bregman. is an author talking about utopias. He, he makes this comment about how People in the past were all sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly. Real
14: quick, here's that clip. For a long time, there was only one utopia. And this is what what historians and anthropologists call the body utopia. So as I said earlier in the interview... Most of history, most people were sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly. So (laughs) in the past, everything was worse. Uh, So it shouldn't be a surprise that when people dreamed of a better future, they mainly dreamed of, you know, a world without, uh, where where you wouldn't be hungry, where you, everyone would have a roof above their head, etc.
0: Okay, so that's the first clip that Linda was referencing, and... I agree that taking words at face value certainly has its place and, and is, you know, usually a good place to start. I will admit that I am hearing this with a a rather forgiving filter because I have heard Rutger Bregman interviewed many times. I read his book and I, I've just never heard or, or, you know, come across any red flags about him that made me think that he doesn't understand class issues In this clip, which is a small part of a longer interview from about three years ago, and I don't remember any of the rest of it. In this clip, he doesn't talk about class, but my general perception of him is that he is not the kind of person to not understand the concerns that Linda is bringing up. So I hear that clip and I think, you know, sick, poor, hungry. You know, that's not a judgment. That's people in the past very much. For the reasons Linda was describing, uh, were kept in poverty by the ruling class and were often sick, poor, and hungry. He says that people were stupid. You could say that's a that's a you know a judgment call. Again, I, and I could be wrong. I, I don't know you know exactly what he means by it. My interpretation, though, again, is that he means something more like ignorant. That basically they are so busy surviving that they don't have. The time to be anything other than ignorant, not a judgment on their actual capacity to retain knowledge dirty and ugly. I mean, again, that these are sort of references to the time people have available to them that the, you know, whether they have time to, (laughs) uh, you know, maintain proper hygiene or, you know, now that the, the beauty industry is. A, a classic example of overindulgence and wealth looking for somewhere to go and and so we're able to spend lots of money making ourselves pretty so again i could be wrong but that's how i hear that clip and the reason why it didn't throw up a red flag for me when i init- initially heard it for someone hearing it without the additional context, then i I absolutely understand where Linda's coming from and and if he means something other than my impression, then yeah, it's a little uh, it's a little sketchy. I don't know that it's from a white supremacist perspective thinking that the unwashed masses of the colonies are stupid, dirty, and ugly. It's just that's just so far removed from bregman's Usual go to and and how he talks about people in the world that I, I would just, I would just be shocked if if that's what he meant. But following up, there, there was the second reference Linda made saying, and look, I, I gotta be honest, I think she may have misheard what Bregman said. She, she said that he mentions Marx and Lenin, and I don't think he actually does. He mentions Lenin. Stalin, and Hitler, and I'll play that clip with plenty of context.
14: You shouldn't take your utopian visions too seriously. You should take them very seriously and not too seriously at the same time. Uh, What we have seen in the 20th century is that there were many utopian thinkers who were obsessed with their blueprints and their five-year plans. And if if reality didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be, they'll then they'll just force reality. I mean, that's what Leninism and Stalinism and Nazism was all about. Uh, and after that, we said, no more utopian thinking for us. Utopian thinking is simply too dangerous. But if you go back again to Thomas More, the original utopian thinker, you'll find a version of utopian thinking that's actually really powerful and um, has a lot more space for humor as well.
0: So as I said, I don't think he mentions Marx anywhere in that clip. He did obviously just then mention Lenin, but it wasn't Lenin and his utopian thoughts. It was his lack of ability to, you know, the way he phrases it, like, keep a sense of humor about it. And the idea that when the ideas that you have don't work out exactly as you want them to, you then decide to... Enforce your ideas With terrible authoritarian style government which can and should be criticized Separately from their political ideas now. I I, you know a lot of their ideas are also terrible so you can criticize their ideas and their implementation, but I think it's Good and thoughtful and nuanced to understand ideas And implementation as being separate things that need to be either praised or criticized separately and independently. So, Linda, thanks for the the comment. If I missed something or misinterpreted what you were saying or anything like that, please call back in and and we'll continue to chat about it in one way or another. Uh, As always, for all of you, keep the comments coming in at 202-99-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoflefe.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and the this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.